Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, our staff expert on all things New Orleans and Mardi Gras, Jeff Cohen, talks to one of the best New Orleans musicians alive today, Trombone Shorty. Stay tuned for that. But first, the story of explorer Henry Morton Stanley is pretty easily boiled down to one question for a lot of people. Dr. Livingstone, I presume? It's the famous line supposedly uttered by Stanley as he discovers the missionary in deepest Africa. But it's another discovery, that of a lost white tribe that may point toward our current understanding of race and colonialism even more than 150 years later. It's a key story in a new book by historian and exploration expert Michael Robinson. He's associate professor of history at Hillier College at the University of Hartford. This book is called The Lost White Tribe, Explorers, Scientists, and the Theory that Changed a Continent. It begins shipping in March. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We've had Michael Robinson here to talk about Antarctic exploration and other types of exploration in the past. It's good to see you once again. Nice to see you, John. So first of all, remind us what got you interested in, in this story in the first place. I was working on a book in um, uh, 2002, 2003 uh, on Arctic exploration, and one of the stories I came across was uh, by a guy named Wilmer Stephenson who traveled to northern Canada. This was really after a lot of the places in the north had been you know, discovered, so to speak. And uh, what he was really interested in is uh, in finding new peoples. Uh, and he went to a place called Victoria Island, and on this island – found a group of people that he uh, came home reporting as blonde Eskimos. And as I came across this story, I thought, you know, this is just the most bizarre thing in the world. Uh, it didn't really fit the kind of work I was doing on, on the book at the time. So I just tucked it away in a file. And uh, over the years, I kept finding more of these, like, lost white tribe stories. And I kept tucking them away. And then ultimately by uh, – by about five or six years ago, I thought, you know, I think I, I think I need to write about this. There's something going on, especially since the fact that um, a lot of these these uh, reports of white tribes took place in a fairly short period of time between 1850 and about 1940. So, uh, yeah, the questions for me were: uh, Are they really finding people who are, uh, you know, racially white, or is this some kind of, uh, you know? fantasy <laughs> of uh, the explorers themselves. So so that was really the kind of question I took to it. Are, are there other examples you can give us? I mean, we're going to get to a main one that's the real th- theme of your book and the thread through your book, but are there other examples in, in this short period of time of people finding these these lost white tribes? Sure. There are uh, missionaries, uh, European missionaries that go to Japan and on the northern island of Japan in the late 19th century, they find the Ainu. Um, and the Ainu they report as being uh, kind of Caucasian in appearance. There's uh, Tibetans that in the 1930s, German expeditions are looking to uh, the people of Tibet as being potentially Aryan in background. There are missionaries in the South Pacific that find uh, the Maori and call the Maori uh, Aryan. There are people in Peru um, and in Panama, which they call the white Indians, um, that were also seen as racially white. In fact, you can kind of go all over the world and find Europeans pointing at native peoples and saying, hmm, 
these people look Caucasian. <laughs> and, and, and that's interesting. And how much, and, and obviously we'll get more into this as we get into your book, but how much of this do you think has to do with the constructs of what race was all about at that time? I mean, what we what we thought to be white and non-white, Caucasian and not Caucasian. That's an awesome question. And uh, it's really the question that kind of drives the book. Because race was a hugely important and interesting question to, uh, to Europeans in the 19th century as they began to not only explore the world but colonize the world and try to f- sort out what their relationship was to the people who they were colonizing. And um, in an attempt both to, let's say, understand the people that they were colonizing as well as to uh, regulating and dominating them, these ideas of racial distinctions became super important. And they tried to find scientific means to establish the different races. You know, And it was like um, uh, constantly through either uh, linguistics, through behavior, through um, studying uh, skull measurements, uh, studying intelligence, all of these different ways they hoped desperately to find these benchmarks of race. It was kind of like chasing the Cheshire cat. It kept escaping them. You know? mm. and, and, and the science, as we'll hear, is, is somewhat science, but it's also uh, uh, very much rooted in, in the Bible. But let's, let, let's turn to the story of Henry Morton Stanley. First of all, b- beyond the, the line, the famous Dr. Livingstone, I presume, line, I mean, what, what should we know about Henry Morton Stanley, the explorer? Stanley uh, was born in England in... Um, the early part of the 19th century, and uh, he moved to the United States. He was actually brought up in an orphanage. I uh, came from very modest um, roots and uh, came to the United States and kind of uh, kicked around doing many things. Um, as a young man, finally um, became a reporter, took the name of a kind of patron and uh, mentor to him. Stanley was not his original name. And... Um, so he was both a striver, someone who was uh, incredibly ambitious, but also someone who was very uh, sensitive about his background. He became a reporter for the New York Herald, which was l- the leading newspaper of the day. Um, and uh, his, uh, his um, employer um, was very interested in trying to find stories, in a sense trying to drive the news. Um, and we came up with ideas for expeditions really to kind of create news stories and when the world's most famous uh, missionary, uh, Livingston, went missing in the late, or basically they stopped hearing from him in the late uh, 1860s, they uh, sent uh, uh, Stanley to search for him. So, so that's, what, that's what he's doing, and, and he's, he's on these explorations. Uh, at, at the time that he finds this white tribe that you write about, what, what was he doing? Where exactly was he in Africa? So uh, so Stanley had, after the expedition in which he finds Livingston and becomes essentially the world's most famous explorer, uh, Stanley um, goes back to Africa in 1874 uh, at this time to kind of clear up a controversy that had consumed the, the British scientific community, which was what is the source of the Nile? And for many years, a number of different British explorers had searched East Africa looking for the, uh, the, the lake that they thought would be the source. So he, he went uh, to clear up this mystery. And uh, in the process of clearing it up, which he did, he confirmed that it was Lake Victoria, he kind of generated a new mystery in the process, which was this anthropological mystery. Uh, while he was heading in, um, into the interior in East Africa, he had a group of 
Africa, a kind of African escort with him of 2,000 men who were helping him cross. And he noticed that four of the men in this group were very, very light-skinned. Um, and he asked about who they were. In fact, he called them so light-skinned they looked to him like they were Greeks. Um, and they, uh, the, the person he was working with said, these people come from a mountain to the west, and they're called Gambaragarans. So Stanley kind of took this in mind, and he thought, you know, I don't know if this is true or not. But sure enough, as they, as they continued to march east, he found this mountain. Uh, it was covered with snow. There was a glacier on the top of it. And so it was almost as if the story started to check out. But before he could get there, there was a group of, um, uh, of Africans that were uh, hostile to the group that they were in. And so he had to deflect his, uh, his march. So he never got to the mountain. But he reported it, nevertheless, to the newspapers back home. And and I'll ask you about the reaction in just a moment. But it's it's interesting you say the story begins to check out because, of course, on top of a, a large mountain with a glacier, it would make perfect sense that lighter skinned people would live up there. <laughs> and it's it's almost as though you can you can see him connecting the dots in his mind of of how we might arrive at this lighter skinned group of people in Africa. That's exactly right. And really, that's that kind of is a, a key to a lot of these stories where. Uh, it's the expectations of explorers combined to things they actually see that somehow get knit together, you know, expectations as, as well as real observations. And then some story emerges, which is a combination of the both. Uh, we're talking today with Michael Robinson. His new book coming out very soon is called The Lost White Tribe, Explorers, Scientists, and the Theory that Changed a Continent. He joins us today in our studio. Uh, he's from Hillier College at the University of Hartford. We've had him on before to talk about the history of exploration, and this is a, a fascinating story. So as he reports this back home, he never makes it to the top of this mountain, but he, he reports back what he saw. What was the reaction back home? What, what did people say? People were astonished. Um, it was it was uh, printed and reprinted all over the United States. The Hartford Current wrote "Lost Race." Uh, Stanley finds lost white race in Africa. Um, it was not only reported in the United States; it spread across the world. Um, it, it then became a, a, a subject of great interest to scientific journals and to scientific societies. So, in Britain, in the United States, in Germany, they started talking about it as well. So it really, um, and that was another thing that actually kind of interested me about this project was, you know, the history of science is a pretty rich field and people write about it all the time. And they write a lot about Stanley. Stanley has about 40 biographies written about him just by himself. And no one has, uh, that I've read about has recently ever talked about this uh, discovery or reported discovery that he made. Um, even though at the time it was incredibly uh, talked about and discussed. Well, why is that? Why do, why do you think that is, that that's, that's the forgotten story of Stanley? I think that, in a way, it's not the story people want to tell about Stanley because it seems so absurd that he would find a group of white people living in the heart of Africa that I think when people, scholars uh, and biographers, run across this story, they, they scratch their head and say, God, this sounds like one of those old mythic tales we heard about Africa, you know, dog-faced men and one-footed, you know, humans and all of these things from the Middle Ages. It sounds preposterous. It certainly doesn't sound like a scientific explorer from the Victorian age. So people either roll over it as a flight of fancy uh, or they ignore it completely. And, um, and they talk more about other subjects that are very, very important, such as the rise of colonization and European conquest and things like this. And so part of it was to resurrect this story because, in fact, it's a living story. It still affects the world today. And one of the things that's interesting, too, concurrent with all this, of course, is 
you know, as, as Charles Darwin's writings uh, become prominent, you see the switchover in this period of history from purely thinking of the world through a scientific lens that is informed by biblical traditions into one that is formed by, I assume, what we'll call Darwinic traditions of some sort, where we really are thinking about science in a totally different way. I guess it makes sense, Michael, that we would not want to remember the Stanley story that sounds preposterous and not really rooted in anything in particular scientific, because our modern conception is of white colonialists and also of a, a certain type of evolutionary theory and scientific theory that has sprung since then. So let, let's let's take a step back, and, and you can describe for us what was the scientific community like at that time, and how much was it informed by old biblical stories? Uh, so in the 19th, the 19th century is a really transitional period, and, and you had um, in, in, in not only in Europe but in parts of the Middle East that were informed by Muslim culture or Judeo-Christian culture um, uh, the, his, the, the kind of history of the world or even history of natural history of, of the sciences were so informed by, um, by holy texts, by the Koran, by the, the Hebrew Bible, by the Christian Bible. And um, that begins to change in the, the late 1700s and in the uh, early 1800s. And so this is a transitional moment where people are going from thinking about the, the globe as being something that may have been 6,000 years old and explained by the stories of Genesis to being something that was far, far, a far, far longer story and more complicated. And, of course, you have evolutionary ideas, which begin before Darwin, but then, of course, Darwin becomes the person who really, uh, in a sense, uh, seals the deal for a lot of the scientific community. So the, the theory that you write about in this book that is still alive at this time is the, the so-called Hamitic theory. And maybe you can describe what this is and who who Ham was. Yeah, so, uh, so, some of us who, who haven't read the Bible for a while had to think about that for a moment. Yeah. So the, um, the, the Hamitic hypothesis, which is what the name, essentially is the name of the theory for explaining why you would find white tribes in places you wouldn't expect them. Um, that name comes from Ham, who was the son of Noah. And as the story goes, if you read Genesis 9, um, Noah, of course, builds the ark, uh, sails with his three sons and their families and uh, a menagerie of animals um, during the flood and eventually come down on Mount Ararat. And in Genesis 9, it talks about how, okay, everyone is disembarking from the boat. Uh, Noah decides to plant a vineyard um, and drinks the fruits of this uh, wine vineyard and gets drunk and is essentially passed out naked. Uh, in his tent, uh, he, he is, uh, his son Ham finds him, reports this to his brothers. His brothers, without looking at their father, uh, clothe him with a cloak. And when Noah w- wakes up, for, for some reason, gets mad at Ham and says, you know, cursed be you, Ham, cursed be your son Cain, and you for, will forever be the slaves of your brothers. Now, this is a very odd story if you read it. Why would Noah be getting mad at Ham, for, you know, <laughs> of all things? It may have to do with an ancient idea of nakedness. It may be that there was some crime committed that is lost to the original story of Genesis. We don't really know. What we do know is probably that this was originally um, intended as a curse against the Canaanites. So this was, in in a sense, a kind of Hebrew story to justify their treatment of the Canaanites in in that part of the world. Um, But over time, the story of Ham 
because the sons of Noah's repopulated the world, they became essentially associated with the different races of the world. Ham became associated with Africans. And as a result, during the slave trade in the 1600s and 1700s, um, Europeans looked to this Genesis story and said, aha, here we have a justification for the slavery of uh, Africans. These are the outcast sons of Ham. and so These are the outcast sons of Ham, exactly right. But what's interesting about, about your story is essentially it gets then flipped on its head. So this is the justification for why the African peoples might be subjugated by Europeans. But then around the story of the lost white tribes, there's, there's a sense that maybe this story explains why we have white people in deepest Africa. Well, that's very confusing, isn't it? It is. And the challenge of this book has been to try to like talk, tell the story of this really confusing theory that keeps changing over time. So, yes, the, the story of Ham was originally used to kind of explain what Europeans saw as the curse of blackness and the curse of slavery. By the 19th century, there were scholars, uh, scientists who were doing essentially race science, trying to figure out the basis of race, who did not believe that the races had a common origin. In fact, they believed that all of the races had different origins. And the, the name of this was called polygenism. These people looked to the story of, uh, of Genesis and they said, well, maybe there's some truth to Genesis, but it's not explaining the common origin of all human beings. It's explaining the origin of the Caucasian race. Now, if you look at Genesis as just being a story of, uh, of essentially Caucasian ancestors, then Ham becomes this essentially this group of Caucasians that enters Africa at some point in the distant past and essentially conquers um, the, the other races of Africa, meaning the black African races. So in a sense... The story gets flipped on its head in the 19th century, becoming an explanation not for the existence of black Africans, but for the existence of white Africans. It's very confusing. <laughs> it, it is confusing. And we're going to take a break in a moment. But I, I'm wondering if then you can explain how Stanley and those concurrent with him uh, were fusing these ideas that go back to Genesis and maybe these new ideas about what the Genesis story tells us with the science of the day, because we were starting to, in the world, become more modern than just looking back 6,000 years. We were indeed starting to develop new scientific ideas. How do these things fuse and merge? Yeah, that's a great question. The reality is, is in the ni- you know, we have an idea, I think, currently that science and religion are often at war in history. We look at the story of Galileo, for example, where he has this fight with the Catholic Church. In truth, Science and uh, religion are always dancing up against each other, really. They're dance partners, and sometimes they step on each other's feet, and sometimes they, they dance well together. And I think this is true of this story very much so, because the, even people like Darwin and those people who were beginning to reject uh, a biblical explanation for the history of the world still believed that the Bible probably had a kernel of truth and that ultimately there was be some way of uniting Uh, basic elements of both stories together. I'll give you a quick example of that. Um, Almost everybody believed in the ancient period, people who were readers of the book, of the Quran or the Bible, that the origin of the human race was in Asia, probably the Middle East or Central Asia. Um, That began uh, when people began to look at linguistics, like uh, the beginning of uh, of, uh, Indo-European language studies. 
they also found a kind of homeland for Indo-European uh, languages in that exact same period. And um, people like Johann Blumenbach, who came up with the term Caucasian, also believed that the origins of the human species were in Central Asia. They liked this idea because it also connect. even though they disagreed with the Bible in many forms, it seemed to connect that story with something that they were discovering in science. Is it about connecting the story or is it about help, helping to, uh, forgive me, but sell the story that they're trying to tell? I mean, it's much easier to sell your scientific theory if most of the world believes in the Bible story and you're able to say, aha, but here's how it connects to the story you already know. Yeah, that's, uh, boy, I mean, that's a great question and, and a difficult one to answer. You know, human motives are are so mixed and, <laughs> and difficult to interpret. So I'm sure there's some of that too. I mean, I, I know for a fact that Darwin, I mean, because Darwin writes about this, yeah. um, Darwin probably by the end of his life was, uh, was uh, an agnostic or an atheist. And yet he deliberated very, it was a very difficult deliberation for him about how to talk about these subjects, not just because he was worried about offending you know, people in British society, but offending his wife, who was deeply devout. <laughs> so, so yeah, these are difficult questions of motivation. Well, we're going to come back with Michael Robinson and talk more about some of the impact of all this on how we think and talk about race today. Even the book is The Lost White Tribe, Explores Scientists and the Theory that Changed a Continent. We'll be right back after this, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking with Michael Robinson. He's an associate professor of history at Hillier College at the University of Hartford. His forthcoming book is called The Lost White Tribe, Explores Scientists and the Theory that Changed a Continent. And if you want to join us, 860-275-7266. Let's go quickly to Josiah, who's calling from West Hartford. Hi there. You're on Where We Live. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if Professor Robinson could talk a little bit about the way that this notion of a lost white tribe uh, continued to play in the popular imagination in, uh, from writers like uh, H. Ryder Haggard and uh, um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs in the Tarzan books. I mean, Tarzan, Tarzan himself is sort of similar to this as this white, white figure set in Africa, but in the, in the other Tarzan stories, he's often discovering lost tribes uh, and uh, um, it, it seems like this notion, whether it, you know, panned out in a sense uh, or not, it continued to have some sort of resonance in the popular imagination. I'm mm. wondering why that is and how that, uh, you know, how that con- continued in. Uh, uh, well, 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 thank you, Josiah. And it's a great question. Uh, Michael, what do you think? Josiah is actually absolutely right. Uh, there, there was H. Ryder Haggard who became essentially so famous for his book King Solomon's Mines, as well as other books like She, that told stories of uh, lost white tribes in Africa. That it really spawned its own genre, that what was called lost lost race fiction in the late nineteenth century, and was uh, adapted and adopted by people. Uh, like Burroughs for the Tarzan novels, as well as by Joseph Conrad, who's really writing about a lost guy, Kurtz, uh, in the middle of the, uh, you know, in the heart of Africa, um, who kind of uh, goes rogue. And um, the the stories were enormously, enormously successful. And in fact, 
about 80% of the literature, lost race literature that was published at this time, was about, involved some kind of lost white race, either in Panama or in the Amazon or in Africa. And these were not just stories that were exciting. I think they were exciting because they tapped some deeper anxiety within the Victorian mind. I think there were a lot of people at this time who were worried about race. They saw their societies changing. In a sense, you could look at the elections today and the popularity of certain Republican candidates and say there are, there are these anxieties about immigrants and, and groups of people that don't look like us. And at that time, in Victorian literature, these stories, in a sense, were a kind of thought experiment which, which examined, well, what is the essence of whiteness itself? What happens when you take you know, the Earl of Greystoke as a little baby and you throw him into the heart of Africa without other human beings around? What does he turn out to be? And of course, in the answer to that question is, well, in, the, in Burroughs' mind, he's awesome. He's Superman. <laughs> um, there's, an, kind of, there's a kind of innate power to whiteness that dominates everything. So then how does all this play out? I mean, obviously, the impact, as we've, as we've laid out, has been huge of this Victorian and pre-Victorian idea of whiteness and then also blackness. Explain some ways in which this is this is played out both in Africa and also in the way that that Europeans viewed this continent that they were colonizing. So the 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 impact of these ideas on Europeans was profound because when they went to other parts of the world and not just Africa to India to the South Pacific to South America they found groups of people that they believed were more racially similar to themselves, that were proto-white, and that they had a kind of scientific theory for explaining how that was possible. And those peoples were generally privileged in, uh, within the colonial structure. They would be given positions within the colonial administrations. At the same time, even when Europeans left Africa, and even as these scientific ideas were debunked, they lived on among Africans and other native communities themselves. So, for example, within Africa today, there are many groups that see their origin as being from outside of Africa and having racial distinctions within Africa that sometimes come to catastrophic uh, to ends, such as the uh, Rwandan genocide. I mean, you can actually link the Rwandan genocide in certain ways to the ideas of the Hamitic hypothesis because the Hutus, and excuse me, the Tutsis, saw themselves as being a Hamitic people, as being a proto-white people from outside of Africa. And that was, in a sense, the basis of their conflict with the Hutu. So then we spin it forward. You've already mentioned the way that we talk about race in America today, the way Europeans are dealing with migrants coming from the Middle East, the way America is dealing with migrants coming from Central America and from Mexico, and uh, the way African-Americans and whites get along in America today. How do you think that this continues to play out in modern America, in 2016 America? I think that we, uh, as a society, I mean, we have changed a lot since the late 19th century. Even though we have many of the same, I think, societies, Western societies, have a lot of the same anxieties and fears that existed in the the late 19th century. The way we think about race has changed. Um, But at the same time, I feel like we, as a people, we chase these kinds of racial distinctions. We're constantly looking for the ways that groups are different from one another rather than see their commonalities. And uh, if, you, 
if you look at the degree to which these people tried to chase racial science and, and in the end failed, they failed to find the kind of racial distinctions they were looking for. I think it's a kind of cautionary tale for today when we try to kind of divide up the world into you know, Muslim and Christian and, and fundamentalist and not fundamentalist. And, and continually look for the way in which, which we are, are, are greater and they are lesser in some way, that, that we are more deserving of the thing that we have and they are less deserving of that same yeah. thing. If there's any kind of um, conclusion to the book, it's that I think the commonalities of the, the human species far outweigh the differences. Mm. What did you find when you went to Africa to do research for this book? What did you see with your own eyes? I went uh, to do some research at Kampala University in Uganda about this story and to talk with some um, scholars there who'd been studying the Hamitic hypothesis. And then I just, I just couldn't help myself. I had to actually go to the mountain, which is in, um, on the border with Congo. And I spent uh, eight days climbing it, which I probably shouldn't have done because I'm not really uh, an experienced climber. Um, but uh, it was a really interesting experience. I would say that what surprised me about the experience was um, – not exactly what I saw as much as what I felt uh, when I was in Western Uganda, and uh, I was really out of contact uh, with my family, with uh, with phone service, with everything. Um, I could feel the isolation, um, even though I was with people who were uh, fantastic, Uganda, a Ugandan guide and Ugandan porter who were so good to me. But I felt that, and uh, I actually ended up suffering from a kidney stone issue while I was at, at Summit mm-hmm. on uh, um, Mount Stanley, which is you know almost 17,000 feet high. <laughs> and at that moment, I think, when I was really suffering from that, I, um, I realized, uh, wow, in these moments of isolation where you feel alone, what do you look for? You're desperate for connection. You, you want to see your family. You want to see people you know. And in a weird sort of way, it gave me a way of thinking about Stanley and why he constantly talked about people who seemed familiar to him, not just white tribes, but also he would see within the faces of Africans people he thought he knew. He said, wow, that guy looks just like Thomas Jefferson, except he's African. And he would say this over and over again in his journal. And in a way, it gave me a kind of way of understanding, let's say, some of the maybe some of the things that motivate people to see things that aren't really there. I, we just have a, a, about a minute and a half left, but this this thing that you study, exploration, it's such a romantic idea. But obviously, a book like this points out how fraught it is, right? The the notion of exploration assumes that someone is finding something for the first time, but what, when we get there, somebody's already been there for thousands of years, right? How has this changed the way you think about exploration in, in us going out and finding whatever it is out there, given that somebody else was already living there to begin with? I think it reinforces for me that we are all, when we travel into the world, a little bit like Mr. Magoo, who uh, (laughs) I I hope all of your listeners remember Mr. Magoo, but I guess Don Quixote is the other version of it. That's a different version, yeah. You know, when we go out into a place we don't know, um, we see new things, but we're always filtering it through our expectations of what we think we're seeing, what we think we should be seeing. Sometimes we get it, you know, we get it right, and sometimes we get it really, really wrong. But in the end, it's always a synthesis of those two things, the things that we're seeing and what we bring as humans to that experience. Are, are we getting it more right now than, than Stanley was back in the day? Um, that's, the, that's an impossible question to answer. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I, I think probably um, um, on certain questions of race and ethnicity, yes. 
But then there are all kinds of perceptual issues that, you know, historians 50 years from now will look back and say, oh, wow, look how slanted their view of this place was. And that's always one of the fascinating things, too, about history is is if you think about 100 years from now and you think about us having this conversation today, even listening back to the digital recording, people might go, my goodness, these people were so dumb about everything. <laughs> I live in fear of that, John. <laughs> Michael Robinson is an associate professor of history at Hillier College at the University of Hartford. His forthcoming book is fascinating. It's called The Lost White Tribe Explores Scientists and the Theory that Changed a Continent. We'll put our some links to this at WNPR.org slash where we live, including a great TEDx talk that he gives on the subject. Michael, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Coming up next, Jeff Cohen, a proud native of New Orleans, sits down with another proud native, Trombone Shorty, to talk about his music. That's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the Connecticut State Legislative Session gets underway. We'll have a preview of how the governor and lawmakers plan to approach another tough budget year. Plus, we'll get reaction to the Iowa caucus results and look ahead to New Hampshire on The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Hope you can join us. Next, we're going to present something a little different. Our reporter, Jeff Cohen, is a proud native of New Orleans. And this time of year, his town is getting ready for Mardi Gras. Turns out that another native son of New Orleans, Trombone Shorty, is coming to Connecticut this week. So Jeff, a trombone player himself, chatted with the musician as he got ready for his gig in stores. About 20 years ago, I was visiting my parents in my hometown of New Orleans, and I decided to buy two framed photographs. One was from my girlfriend at the time. It was a moody picture of the city's St. Louis Cathedral. The other was of a small boy playing the trombone in a jazz funeral. I still have the one of the boy playing hanging in my house. It reminds me of the place I grew up, and it was only as I prepared for this interview that I figured out that the boy with the horn was Troy Andrews, better known as Trombone Shorty. Troy will be in Connecticut on Thursday playing with his band Orleans Avenue at UConn's Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts. Right now he joins me by phone. Troy Andrews, Trombone Shorty, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Jeff. So look, I'm, I'm looking at your concert calendar, and I see that you've got shows coming up in Mexico and then all across New England and Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, here in Connecticut. And then it's back to New Orleans where it's carnival season, and you've got a concert during the heart of Mardi Gras after one of the biggest parading days. So uh, my first question to you is, is, as a New Orleanian who travels the world, a musician who's you know known around the world, how do you explain Mardi Gras to people who haven't experienced it? Well, you know, it's very, very hard to explain it, but it's just, if you can imagine a party with no rules, just having fun, uh, the biggest party in the world, a lot of music, a lot of great people just walking down the streets, listening to brass bands and dancing until the next morning, Uh, a lot of great food. It's really hard to explain, but it's, it's just a wonderful thing that people should come down and experience, and and we're going to try to bring a bit of that when we hit the stage. We go every year to, to visit my parents in New Orleans, and when we go and I bring my kids, everyone sort of re- looks at me kind of funny, and they say, you bring your kids to Mardi Gras? Tell me about, <laughs> tell me about that, because in, in my sense, Mardi Gras really is, uh, I think there's one sense of what it might seem from afar, but I think as I experience it, I'm curious how you experience it, as I experience it, it's very much about family. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, there's different sides of Mardi Gras. When people 
think, and they ask you a question of would you bring your kid there, I think that's them coming from the more commercial aspect from looking at it on TV and Bourbon Street and all that Bourbon Street and the French Quarter has to offer. But at the same time, the way I grew up in the Treme, you know, it was almost like a family reunion. People get together, we cook and uh, eat crawfish and, and party and watch the Mardi Gras Indians go, mm. go around the neighborhood and also – the parades and different things are really exciting for the kids to catch teddy bears and coconuts and, and different things. So it depends on what, what side of Mardi Gras you're looking at, but it works for everyone. You know, you got people that's just coming in as tourists that want to party all night. We have that. And also if you have uh, people that, that, that want to bring the kids just for the atmosphere to watch the marching bands and the dances and everyone, I mean, Mardi Gras covers all the bases of what what party can be for every human being. Now, do you get to experience Mardi Gras still today? I know you're playing after one of the big parading days on Sunday, but is that something that you still enjoy participating in? Yeah, whenever I get the chance, uh, I I try to go out and go to the parades and and hang out a little bit just because it's a part of the tradition and it's something that I grew up doing. Mm. Uh, I, I try to do it as much as I can. The last few years with the with the busy touring schedule that we've been keeping, it's been very hard for me to, to be there. So I'm lucky if I'm able to catch one parade. But uh, fortunately, I've been doing this show here uh, after one of the big parades on, on a Sunday night right before Mardi Gras. We'll always make sure we come back for that. And doing sound check, the parade actually starts there. So we'll uh, hang out at sound check and go right outside and watch it uh, kick off and uh, – and it works out, but as much as I can, I try to do it. That's terrific. Hey, look, along those same lines, I'd like to ask you a little bit about New Orleans and itself and its role in your music. The city gets a lot of attention, and it's and it seems to me from where I am that you're kind of one of the city's cultural ambassadors of its music, of its attitude, and, you know, I mean, I know where you're from as a musician. It's part, it's part of your band name. It's part of who you are. I'm wondering if you share that sense that New Orleans is, is a part of your not just who you are, but who you are represented to be? And if so, if that puts any pressure on you as an artist? Uh, Well, you know, New Orleans is everything that I am. You know, without the city and without the things that I've been able to experience coming up in the Treme and just being in New Orleans, I don't think I would sound the way that I sound. I don't think I would have the the, the background musically that I would have. Mm -hmm. And just growing growing up in a city where music is a part of everyday life, it really has a tremendous effect on who I am today. So uh, as far as the pressure goes, maybe I feel a little pressure from some of the older musicians when they tell me, you know, it's in your hands or mm. we're counting on you to do some things like that or to keep it alive or different things like that. That that can be a little nerve-wracking coming from people like the Neville Brothers and Dr. John and people like that because I look up so much to those guys that help create a platform and a foundation for me to even build my career off and have, and left a lot of great information and tools for me to become who I am. But other than that, you know, just being from New Orleans and having the city uh, show me the same love that I, I've, I've given them and they've raised me here. Uh, I, I don't mind the pressure, you know. I, I mm. feel great to be one of the one of the uh, the people to help represent what this great city has been doing for uh, a lot of years now. It seems like a responsibility, but one that you're not opposed to having. Yeah, right. I, I, I'll take the responsibility, you know, and I mm. and I also want to take the responsibility to be able to 
uh, educate the younger musicians and people that's coming up after me so they can continue the legacy and have and, and they can take on a responsibility to keep the music moving forward that's coming out of New Orleans. And speaking of moving forward, I've read where you said that your music shouldn't be just a reflection of where you're from, but also of everywhere your life has been. So your sound isn't a stereotypical New Orleans brass band sound. It, it might be your roots. It's something that I know you can play. Uh, but New Orleans isn't just brass bands either, right? It's got a lot of uh, history, lifetime of funk and rock. So tell me, as you're about to play up here in, in Connecticut, for those who aren't familiar with your music, do me a favor, describe it for me. Describe me. Describe for, for listeners what you're hoping to achieve. Well, you know, with my music, is like you said, it's not the typical New Orleans thing. It's something that I grew up playing in the brass bands in the street and, and all those type of things. So I definitely have that in there coming through my horn, but... The foundation behind me, we're very influenced by different things. So in New Orleans, we have all type of subgenres of music. Uh, New Orleans R&B, New Orleans rock and roll, New Orleans funk, New Orleans whatever it may be. And I've been fortunate enough to be influenced and play with some of the great musicians that's really great at that particular genre of New Orleans type of music. So I just put everything in, and I try to be a sponge and a, and a student of everything that I've been placed to be a part of so the music that we have is going to be uh that we're playing is, is basically like a musical gumbo everything uh we're very influenced by all types of music and there's a lot of funk rock and uh mm. and uh, and our music with the horns leading uh but i think the common ground here is just a big party and a big dance a big dance and uh, situation to where everybody's going to have a great time. And tell me, Troy, about your some of your bandmates. Uh, are these folks that you grew up with uh, in New Orleans? Yes. Uh, my drummer, Joey Peebles, he's been playing with me since he was 14. And my bass player, we've been playing together since we were maybe uh, 10 or 12 years old. And uh, a couple of other musicians that's in the band, we've been playing for over 10 years or something like that together. But all these, uh, the drummer and the bass player, we, we literally grew up as friends and, and created this sound together. And I allowed them to bring their strong, whatever they're strong at, because all of us listen to different type of music. My drummer, he likes to listen to Sting and uh, Nine Inch Nails. And yeah. my bass player listens to a lot of hip hop stuff. And so, like I was telling you, everybody's strong at a particular type of genre of music. And when we get together, we just find out a way to feed off each other. But, these, you know, they've been with me for a very, very long time, and I'm, I'm very blessed to be able to have the same band and same foundation so we can continue to create this music. Let me ask you, are you in, in big-time tour mode at the moment? Are you recording new music? Uh, I'm semi-in-between both of them. You know, we're, we're on tour, but I'm also at home. Uh, I've just been here for about a week, and I've been in the studio probably every other day, so mm. it, it's really weird. You know, I, I don't know... If I'm ever if I'm ever able to distinguish the two modes I'm supposed to be in, when I'm home I want to be on the road. When I'm on the road I want to be home. But when I'm in the studio I like to take a break. But then the music is coming, so it's uh I'm just in music mode all the time, wherever that may be. Uh, so um, let me ask. I know that the Jazz Fest, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival lineup came out this week. It's a big festival in the city of New Orleans. If you haven't been, I know you've been. <laughs> you haven't been. You performed, but I've been. Uh, if you haven't been and you're listening, you should take uh, some time and go down there. Troy, you your act is you and your band are closing the Jazz Fest this year, and that's a uh, something you've done before. Uh, that is such a huge festival in the city. And you play uh, a huge stage there outside with just a bunch of sweaty, grungy, well-fed people out there watching. <laughs> What's it like being on that stage? 
You know, it, it's different for me. Uh, I grew up playing the Jazz Fest since I was maybe about uh, five years old, and I only missed one that I could think of. Mm. But to be able to play the stage, uh, play that play that stage and close out the festival, I've sat in with the Neville brothers who held that spot for as probably as long as I've been alive. Mm. To be able to play that and close it out and end on a high note in New Orleans and play some New Orleans music at the New Orleans Jazz Festival, it, it's just a really, really, uh, it's like a Super Bowl to us, like me and my band. No matter where we are, when we get to the Jazz Fest, even though it's in the early part of the year, that's like a, a big accomplishment for us. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we're very, very honored and blessed that the Jazz Fest thought of us to be able to handle that and, and be able to close it out. But it, it's incredible. And some of the biggest bands, probably only way in, the only place it'll happen in New Orleans where we get some of the biggest bands in the world to play before us. You know, Lenny Kravitz played before us and some other people. It's been, uh, it's, it's just been remarkable to be able to have that spot and play and, and, and keep the tradition of having New Orleans act close it out. Mm. And you've spoken about tradition and tra- and tradition in the music and in, in bringing music to kids. Tell me a little bit about the Trombone Shorty Foundation. Yeah, well, the Trombone Shorty Foundation is uh, basically it's an academy that I'm in partnership with Tulane University. And uh, I just wanted to be able to give the kids a foundation from the music business aspect side of it and also give them some foundation fundamental fundamentally excuse me fundamentally to where they can get some things together because we have a lot of great young musicians that play on the street but they might not necessarily have the right tools to uh to move their career forward as far as it goes being a uh a, a all-around musician so i wanted to be able to just give those kids that opportunity to learn theoretically some some fun, fundamental things that can help take their career to the next level as they continue to grow and also just give them a foundation to be able to understand the music business side of it. Even though we mm. can't teach them everything at this particular point, at least they know that that side exists. And some of them, like I was telling them, you know, before you get to a level to where you can have a manager, you may have to manage yourself. And, and these are some of the basic tools that you should have under your belt uh, to know before you even get to that level. So you understand what's going on. And, uh, and and you know and also with the foundation I give away instruments to the kids hmm. and uh and we just give away instruments and and hopefully hopefully help uh change some of their lives and have them take the music to the next level or go to college or whatever it may be terrific hey we got a couple minutes left uh we have a few things in common i'm from new orleans you're from new orleans i've got a picture of you hanging in my house maybe you've got a picture of me hanging in your house Yep. <laughs> you, and you play trombone, and I play with my trombone. I picked it up a few years ago, and I started taking lessons. In fact, I have a lesson today after we're done, so I'm hoping I could ask you like a few quick trombone speed round questions. Yeah. Do you clean out your horn a lot? Because I don't, and I'm wondering if that's part of my problem. Well, every every couple of weeks off when I get off tour, for some reason I've been really uh, hard on my horn. I always find a way to dent it up for some reason when I'm jumping on stage, so... After about a couple of weeks, I sent it back to my guy in Slidell, Louisiana, and he cleans it and fixed it up for me. Every couple of weeks? Every couple of weeks. I just messed it up yesterday for some reason. <laughs> All right. I need to get your guy's information. Maybe it'll help me with my playing, but it's not because I'm jumping around. It's just because I'm not very good at it. <laughs> uh, uh, here's another one. My kids always look at me funny when I when I you know blow out the, the, the spit valve. And my, their question is, is that is that condensation or is that just really spit? It's, I think it's just spit, you know, just... Just uh, 
when you're blowing and you're talking, you can feel the spit coming out. But I never empty it out in front of people. So if I'm on stage, I try to swing it behind my legs to where no one even notices. <laughs> you, the kids do get a little freaked out. <laughs> All right, yeah. la- last one. What do you charge for a half-hour lesson? Nothing for you. <laughs> if I can give you some information, I would love to give it to you. you know, that's the great thing about New Orleans is that musicians just come up to you if they see you struggling with something and they'll just tell you what to do give you a lesson and then a couple of weeks later they'll see you and expect you to be able to play it and then they'll give you some more information so whatever you need if i can help you out in any way it's a free lesson (laughs) there you go troy andrews trombone shorty uh i got a lesson to go to so uh, i haven't practiced i'm gonna stop here thanks so much for taking the time to talk about mardi gras new orleans and your music thank you sir that was troy andrews trombone shorty in a recent interview with wnpr's jeff cohen Trombone Shorty and his band Orleans Avenue will be in Connecticut this Thursday playing a special Mardi Gras-themed concert at UConn's Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts. For photos and video of Trombone Shorty, visit our website, wnpr.org. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. You can continue our conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live.